You're listening to a podcast from Why Not a Woman? Celebrating women in public and private life in Ireland, 1918-2018. to The Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2018. The conference took place in Dublin Castle on the 15th of December and was supported by the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This podcast features the third panel at the conference, Women on the Margins, Contemporary Issues, Historical Debates. The panel was Professor Lucy McDermott from Montclair University, Dr. Kira Vranach from University of Limerick, Dr. Sarah Buckley from National University of Ireland, Galway, and Donna Vuma from the University of Limerick. The discussion was chaired by Catherine Heaney, chairperson of the National Museum of Ireland. I'm very privileged to be introducing and chairing this session of the conference because I think sometimes we forget that everything has a context. And my best history lesson actually was delivered by one of the panellists to me, um, Kira Brannock. We were on a, a car journey. Both of us were uh, on the board of the Heritage Council and we're after having a very long day and we're discussing matters of the state and what have you. And Kira said, you know, why don't we reflect more on history? Why do we keep reinventing the wheel and forgetting our past and the lessons that we can learn from the past to inform the future? And I regularly refer to Kira's history lesson. It lasted about, I'd say, two minutes, but I got the point. Um, and it was interesting over um, the spring there after the referendum um, on the Eighth Amendment, I went to Dublin Castle because I um, had been working on sexual reproductive rights and health for a long time in my own adult life. Um, I was at one stage the director of the Family Planning Association. And I remember at that point there were lots of voices, you know, and lots of people that had sort of uh, advocated on not just abortion rights, but actually general access to sexual and reproductive rights for such a long time, when it was a very lonely space to advocate in. And I walked into the courtyard of Dublin Castle and went up to the very front, you know, as then various people came onto the stage and waved down at us and said, we won, we won, or whatever. And actually, I felt a sudden kind of sadness or poignancy because I thought, right, well, there's lots of people on the stage, but um, there's lots of people that I know that were in our history that actually had made small changes for women and for women's health, even around issues like access to contraception or safe birthing, for example. I remember reading Michael Solomon's book around Tenement Dublin and the birthing conditions of the time for women. So it's been a long journey, and success has many mothers... And funny, I turned around, there was a woman standing beside me and we started discussing the issue because actually we're surrounded by like, much younger people, you know, like all wearing T-shirts and the T-shirt never suited me at all, so I didn't have one. But anyway, we're having a chat and she said she was a volunteer with the Well Woman Centre in the 80s, the early 80s, and sort of they closed down the centre in the evening after all the clients had left and that a couple of them would, during the um, 1982 referendum, would climb a ladder and put posters up. And I thought, you should be on that stage. You know, you are the, the mother of our success, the part of our history. And I think that's uh, sort of a good kind of intro to today's panel, because it's about linking our history to contemporary life and the lessons we should learn, and how history has to be a reference point in everything we do. 
And I'm in the privileged position, while I'm not an expert in any of these things, and I feel absolutely in awe of every single one of the panellists today, I have to say, but in my spare time, um, just because of my deep interest in um, issues around history and cultural heritage, I chair the National Museum of Ireland. And it's funny that, you know, women aren't well represented in our national collection. You know, we forget about these things, we sort of go on and... Um, I think that we've made huge advances, actually, particularly this year, because I'm really pleased to say that uh, Roisin de Butler, who's a, a glass artist, has been our first uh, artist in residence at the National Museum in Collins Barracks. And she has done some fa fabulous advocacy around keeping the stories and the skills of our glass masters, the water crystal glass masters, alive. And she's effectively done an advocacy programme down in Collins Barracks now, the exhibition is going to be going down next week, but I would highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. It's a beautiful, reflective piece. Again, history informing our future, history reminding us of our past and showing that everything, as I said, has a context. So without further ado, because I know that we'd rather discuss and reflect, and this is largely about discussing and reflecting, introduce our panel. Uh, to kick off with, we have Professor Lucy um, McDiarmid, who I'll speak about uh, very shortly, um, followed by Dr. Keir Brannock, who I've previously referenced, um, Dr. Sarah Ann Buckley, and finally then, I'm really pleased to introduce uh, Donna Vuma, um, and Donna is going to kind of end the session, I think, with a lot of personal reflection, and probably informing our future. So... On that note, I'm going to call to the podium uh, Professor Lucy McDiarmida. Uh, Lucy has a strong connection with Ireland, and she's um, a respected scholar and writer, receiving her PhD from Harvard University, and she's the, currently the Marie Fraze Baldessari Professor of English at Montclair State University. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Sarah Ann and Fanula Walsh, who's upstairs. Um, I'm going to be talking about three short fairy legends um, from Lady Gregory's uh, 1920 collection, Visions and Beliefs in the West of Ireland. Uh, Lady Gregory started collecting these in 1897, and she collected the last few right before the book went into print. Her informants were primarily people in counties uh, Galway and Clare, um, there are also a few people um, in Inishman. Uh, these people were generally, they were tramps and beggars. They were local people selling fish or chicken. Uh, the groom at Cool, a local piper and a basket maker, maker. And anybody who had heard from any of these people that Lady Gregory was interested in collecting stories about fairies, wise women, and healers. Two of the stories um, I'll be talking about were collected before 1900, and the reason I know that is that I looked up the manuscript notebooks, which are in the Berg collection of the New York Public Library. There are 24 of them. They look like that, more or less. Um, Lady Gregory started out trying to write as people were talking, but she discovered that it was better to listen, give her whole attention to the person talking, and then go home and write everything down. And she apparently had everything from memory, or so she said. Um, so the stories that I'll read and that you have on those sheets 
are reported in the voices of the tellers as Lady Gregory heard them. This session is called Women on the Margins, and I want to emphasize that the women in these stories are not actual historical figures, uh, though the tellers always locate the women in specific places, as is traditional for this kind of uh, short, usually domestic-sided fairy legend. But even though the women in these stories may not be identified in a particular way, the story types are common, and the events described in them express experiences that are recognizable because they have a social and emotional validity. The tradition itself is on the margins because, as Angela Burke has written, fairy legends constitute a marginal verbal art, a subaltern discourse, the opposite of the dominant modes of speech and thought, the elaborated codes by which most privileged ideas are conveyed, especially in print. So fairy legends are almost entirely confined to oral communication. The argument that I want to make is that these three stories, which are typical of fairy legends about women, all show a point of conflict between the woman and the social structure in which she lives. Each is set at a significant event in a woman's life, and in the order in which I'll be discussing them, depression, marriage, and adolescence. That's obviously not chronological, but it's the order in which I chose. Um, at those times, depression, marriage, adolescence, it's possible to see both the way the woman expresses her resistance and the way the social unit, family or church, compels her acquiescence. So you have in these then the woman expressing resistance and what some social unit or another compelling her acquiescence. In my general approach, I owe much to Professor Angela Burke, who's sitting right there, um, whose wonderful scholarship I've been reading for almost 30 years, but the particular analyses that I'm going to be giving you are my own. This is actually, I, you have the print. I just want you to see where the story came from. Um, the intermediate stage between the teller and the print is this. Um, and that's the particular story I'm reading. Um, Gregory groups the stories in her books by type, and all the ones that I'm talking about comes in the type that she calls away, namely people taken away by the fairies. And this is the first one which you have there. As to the woman brought back again, it was told me by a boy going to school there at the time, so I know there's no lie in it. It was one of the tailors, a rich family in Scarif, his wife was sick and pining away for seven years. And at the end of that time, one day, he came, he had a drop of drink taken, and he began to be a bit rough with her. And she said, don't be rough with me now, after bearing so well with me all these seven years. But because you were so good and so kind to me all that time, says she, I'll go away from you now, and I'll let your own wife come back to you. And so she did, for it was some old hag she was. And the wife came back again and reared a family. And before she went away, she had a son that was reared a priest. And after she came back, she had another son that was reared a priest. So that shows a blessing came on them. The woman sick and pining away for seven years only stops pining when her husband hits her. 
In the discourse of fairy legends, she wasn't herself. Uh, it was an old hag substituted by the fairies who was there instead. Of course, the hag is the wife when she's pining. The man's own wife, the healthy woman, returns when the hag is beaten and made to go away. We don't know the precise nature of the pining or the reason for it, and it's not as if it's hidden from us. It's just not there. It's not part of the story. It sounds like depression, perhaps postpartum, and it apparently involves a retreat from marital sexual life because when she came back, she reared another son. The narrative implies that um, by noting the child before and the child after the seven years. In a great many of the fairy legends, the end of the fairy presence is marked by a re-Catholicizing of the family or the house. In this case, before and after the fairies, uh, we have the priestly son. Burke points out that fairy legends establish, quote, the boundaries of normal, acceptable behavior. This one shows that seven years of pining are not acceptable, to the husband at least. The woman who does that risks spousal abuse. And when that occurs, the woman in this story makes it stop by praising the husband for his previous treatment of her, for being so good and so kind to me all the time. And then the sick wife, the hag left by the fairies, uh, disappears and the healthy wife returns. Whether you impute the agency for that change to the fairies or to the wife herself, the resolution of the story shows the unacceptability of seven years of pining. I didn't find yet the manuscript um, for this next story, but you'll see how this illustration is, is relevant. In the next story also, violence perpetrated on a married woman leads her to control her unacceptable behavior. And it's the second story which you have on your sheets. There was a girl in the County Clare, and she went to get married, and she and the husband were riding back on the one horse, and it slipped and fell. And when she got to the house, she got quiet and not a word out of her. And everybody said she used to be a pleasant, jolly girl, but this was like an old woman. And she sat there by the hob for three days, and she didn't turn her face to the people. But the husband said, let her alone, maybe she's shy yet. But his mother got angry at last, and she said, I'd sooner be rubbing stones on the clothes than watching an idle woman. And she went out to the flax, and she said to the girl, you'd best get the dinner ready before the men come in. But when she came in, there was nothing done, and she gave her a blow with some pieces of the flax that were in her hand and said, get out of this for a good-for-nothing woman. And with that, she, that's the bride, she went up the chimney and was gone. And the mother got the dinner ready, and then she went out, not knowing in the world how to tell the husband what she had done, but when she got to the field where they were working, there was the girl walking down the hill. And she took the two hands of her mother and said, it's well for me you hadn't patience to last two days more, or I'd never have got back. But I never touched any of the food while I was with them. The narrative arc of this story comprises a young bride's adjustment to her submission to the ways of her in-law's household. 
The resistance takes the form of a refusal to speak, a refusal to look at people, and a refusal to do her share of the household work. The husband in this story is kind and understanding, siding with his new wife against his mother. Let her alone, maybe she's shy yet. She may be shy. She may like, not like surrendering to the authority of her mother-in-law. She may be scared. Her feelings are only expressed in her refusal to interact socially with the family. But when the new wife fails to get dinner ready, the mother-in-law asserts her authority in speech and in physical abuse. What goes up the chimney and is gone turns out to be the bride's bad attitude. But the mother-in-law is uneasy that her violence seems to have had a rather powerful effect. Maybe it was too much. Then, surprise, she finds the girl outside. After being beaten, the bride accepts that she's got to become a functioning part of the household. It's significant that the girl's ritual submission is affectionate, but happens outside of the house, perhaps even near where the men were working. The geopolitical statement is that she was away, but is now returning home, to her new home. Her comment thanks her mother-in-law for compelling her to submit, just as in the first story, the woman thanks the husband for being so kind for seven years. Um, and she, this, the woman associates her refusal to eat, which we only hear about at this point, with the time when she didn't feel at home because she was with them. As Burke writes in, about fairy legends, disruptions to social life are identified as coming from outside, i.e. the fairies, and are forcefully repudiated. And now I'm going to look at the final story, uh, which you can read here if you prefer, or you can read in print. The final story is about an adolescent girl whose antisocial behavior happens within the home. There was a girl at Inishkil in the east of the country, of the same name as my own, was lying on a mat for eight years. When she first got the touch, the mother was sick, and there was no room in the bed, so they laid a mat on the floor for her, and she never left it for the eight years, but the mother died soon after. She never got off the mat for anyone to see. But one night, there was a working man came to the house, and they gave him lodging for the night, and he watched from the other room, and in the night, he saw the outer door open, and three or four girls and boys come in, and a piper with them, or a fiddler, I'm not sure which, and he played to them, and they danced, and the girl got up off the mat and joined them. And in the morning, when he was sitting at breakfast, he looked over to her where she was lying and said, you were the best dancer among them last night. There was a priest came when she had been about two years lying there and said something should be done for her. And he came to the house and read masses. And then he took her by the hand and bid her stand up. But she snatched the hand away and said, get away, you devil. At last, Father Lahif came to Inishkil and he came, and whatever he did, he drove away what was there and brought the girl back again. And since then, she walks and does the work of the house as well as another. And Father Lahif said in the chapel, it was a shame for no priest to have done that for her before. Clearly, women who are sick and pining, or refuse to talk or to work, or refuse to get off a mat, are disrupting the social order and must be socialized forcibly. The reference to the dead mother suggests that the girl was traumatized by the loss 
and couldn't move on. The working man's story can be understood, I think, as the adult male's notion of what's going on with the difficult adolescent girl. She must have a secret, nocturnal, erotic life. It could also be the man's own erotic fantasy about a beautiful girl who's lying on a mat all the time. There's something prurient about him, staring at this girl dancing in the middle of the night. Um, but the sentence that he speaks is beautiful. You were the best dancer among them last night. The girl expresses herself quite directly to the first <coughs> priest. Get away, you devil. Her rejection of conventional religion in the form of male power shows that the fairy influence is still strong. Why does she acquiesce to the second priest? Maybe after eight years, she's ready to leave the mat and join domestic life again. Maybe the second priest is more persuasive or more authoritative. But like the women in the other two stories, at the end, she submits to authority, to authority and thus is no longer away. This is just what you hear in the women's voice, own voices within the story, and I think it's interesting to look at that altogether. These three stories show the authority of family and church and the women's resistance to that power displaced into narratives of fairy legend, fairy abductions. Other than a few brief sentences, we know little of the women's interior lives except through their behavior, their refusals to get up, to have sex, to do housework, to talk. So we can't tell, as we could in poetry or fiction or autobiography, how much the resolutions might derive from external compulsion and how much from the women's agency. But even without more from the women's own voices, the fairy legends show definitively the anxiety at the points of conflict between the women's desire for autonomy and the surrenders they're required to make. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucy. And I think the lesson is that we all love a fairy tale, I have to say, because I wasn't even looking at the time there that it's just so enthralling, but very insightful. Many of you will know uh, Lucy's most recent book is At Home in the Revolution, What Women Said and Did in 1916. Uh, so very much appreciated your input there, uh, Lucy, and very provocative indeed. So our next speaker is Dr. Kira Branagh. And I'm always in wonder at Kira because uh, she just does so much. It's a real privilege uh, for me to introduce her. And as many of you know, that Kira is a senior lecturer in history at UL. So you're very welcome, Kira. Um, uh, thank you, Catherine. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Sarah Ann Buckley and the Women His Women's History Association of Ireland for the invitation to speak today in such a distingu distinguished panel. I would also like to acknowledge the Irish Research Council's funding uh, of my research. While the free state and cultural national ethos routinely looked to the West as a bastion of pure Irish identity, in political terms, rural Ireland only found expression in the context of the land or the language questions. The former was considered resolved by the 1923 Hogan Land Act and the latter with the protections of official language status put in place under the 1922 Constitution. But these were general solutions and rural Ireland had a complicated structure of social class. In the West, there was a relatively large populace 
that survived precariously on uneconomic holdings and a remittance economy. That is a tenantry of smallholders who had little to no chance of becoming owner-occupiers, and many of whom had not managed to do so under the increasingly generous terms of the Land Acts of 1881, 91, 1903 or 1909 without significant external assistance or capital investment. This paper provides an overview of the pervasive nature of poverty in rural Ireland, especially in the West, and its impact. Absences and silences beleaguer the advancement of a total history of rural poverty, but it is possible to reconstruct an impression from government commissions. In this paper, I will draw attention to health inequality indicators to show that women of reproductive age probably suffered most in terms of rural poverty. The West was identified as a depressed economic zone in 1891 when the Congested Districts Board was founded to improve living condi conditions and standards in 84 districts as shown on the map on the left. These congests were not overpopulated, rather the land yield was too poor to sustain the resident population. Following a Royal Commission in 1909, Entire counties of Donegal, Mayo, Leitrim, Roscommon, Galway, Clare, Kerry and the West Riding of Cork came under the board's remit. The amelioration of centuries of injustice that could be traced to the 17th century required specialist knowledge and targeted funding. But the Irish Free State had little to no money and a debt of £127 million for land bonds alone. Unfortunately, the board was disbanded in 1923 and not replaced by any specific measures until 1956 with the foundation of a separate ministry for the Gaeltacht. Repeated parliamentary questions in the Dáil about the fate of the congested district board funds and assets were met with similar responses of national as opposed to regional priorities. And so the west of Ireland was permitted to carry the very heavy burden of tradition but to languish economically for three decades. When Irish language poet Sean O'Reardon first visited Dunquin in 1951, he was shocked by the levels of poverty he encountered in rural West Kerry. It was quite unlike anything he had witnessed in Cork City, where he worked, in Ascara, a rural community just outside Cork City, where he lived, or Balavurna on the Cork Kerry border, where he was from. O'Reardon was no stranger to poverty owing to a lifetime plagued by tuberculosis and later bronchial disease. And in his diary, which I show here, um, we can see the first encounter he had of this fear Gweltacht. It was an immersion as follows. Mainun Queen. Larthur Gwelgar Fadansa. Ihua, Ihua. Larthur Gwelgalesh I'm in Dunquin. They speak Irish completely here. Good night, good night, they speak Irish to the dogs. He's delighted with himself. And then he has this realisation. Donadina anavoktansa thon shepel gosuruk, tri shrahna the hiakon agason fervor on urlor furv, kathar shulig and realtis, thon rudata uun le fallansa, noshun slon, and changabio, ak thonadina nisbukta na eindram elenerin. The people are very poor here, the church is miserable. Three rows of seats and most of it is empty floor. What is the government doing? The thing we want can be found here. A safe nation. The living language. But the people here are poorer than any other crowd in Ireland. 
To O'Rear Don's eyes, the paucity of church furniture was emblematic of a reduced people living in abject poverty as a result of decades of state neglect. In fact, the paucity of content was a sensitive socio-economic indicator in its own right. Irish Catholics had been bequeathing, bequeathing money for memorialisation in churches in most areas for decades, so much so that it prompted in part the Succession Act of 1965, but in the rural West there were no such surpluses. A spectrum of poverty from relative to absolute existed in the West of Ireland from the post-famine era right up until the 1950s and 60s. But its most notable characteristic under the Free State is the degree to which the people from agricultural labourer to small farmer classes suffered their penury in silence. There are several reasons for this, not least the absence of charitable institutions and remoteness. But I would argue that aspirations of social mobility upward social mobility, that is, play a much greater part than has been previously acknowledged. After all, engagement with forms of social welfare, or indeed charity, were so, so closely tied to social status that rural people were loath to engage with them. The negative connotations of the 1847 Gregory Clause, which required tenants to give up land in excess of a quarter of, acre, of an acre to qualify for indoor relief in the workhouse, although it was repealed in 1862, seems to have had a long legacy in behavioural terms. The people of the West perceived themselves not as peasants, but as smallholders and small farmers. And there has been much debate among scholars about which people the land of Ireland was for. But there was a general agreement, and indeed the Commission on the Guelph had advocated, that for the language to thrive, lands in the West should be reserved for native Irish speakers. But to realise entitlement to lands, entire households had to maintain this facade of respectability, and that meant bearing poverty with dignity and in silence. There are numerous references in local government board annual reports of low to no engagement with public health instruments of union hospitals and the associated dispensaries under the poor law from 1851 to 1922, Common perceptions of engagement with the machinations of the poor law pre-1922 and its serestot iterations of county homes and home assistance among rural communities was, of course, tantamount to assigning oneself a social class, that of pauper, which as a short-term solution could negate any and all hard-won upward mobility gains. The safeguarding of household reputation was of great importance in rural Ireland, Lindsay Erna Byrne, in her excellent study of charity letters, notes the ironies of letters coming from the rural poor, who often lived in physical isolation, but were terrified of being found out seeking charity. She cites the case of Father Henry Talbot, Kilcullen, County Galway, who wrote to Archbishop Byrne of, of Dublin on the 23rd of August 1925, on behalf of a parishioner that, and I quote, bound him over to secrecy, unquote. Father Talbot wrote that any efforts on his part to make additional inquiries about her plight would expose her. He wrote, and I quote, You will readily understand that in a small remote place like this, secrecy is impossible, unquote. A series of government commissions were conducted from the late 19th century using rudimentary scientific methods to examine poverty and diet at household level. In 1891, 1891, it was found that diet was limited, but more worrying was that in the poorest districts, nutritionally superior produce, like butter fat from milk and eggs, were being bartered and sold on a regular basis and, re and replaced with inferior quality goods. 
A survey undertaken in 1908 on tuberculosis and public health risk revealed that rural labourers in the West were, and I quote, insufficiently fed, and therefore they were medically vulnerable. Such dietary changes were inextricably linked to the increased usage of cash and the uneasy shift from natural or subsistence farming to market economies. And in that transition, women from smallholder households lost their financial autonomy. For example, payments by dairy industry cooperatives were made to men, and bank accounts were primarily in the names of male household heads. Follow-up surveys were conducted in 1919 and in 1926. Both noted improvements in living standards, but offered high-level and positive views of average household income and expenditure at the better-off end of the poverty spectrum. Despite recommendations of continued state supports to reduce the risks associated with subsistence farming, what followed was three decades of blatant neglect. So when a sample of 200 families from the congested districts underpinned the findings of Part 2 of the National Nutritional Survey, which was undertaken from 46 to 48, needless to add, it's no wonder that, like previous surveys, it revealed that in times of scarcity, protein consumption decreased and was replaced with cheaper foodstuffs, ranging from the monocarbohydrate diet and the expansion of the bread and spread diet. E. Margaret Crawford notes that in overall terms, the National Nutritional Survey found that meat consumption was lowest in the congested districts, but that fish was also consumed and not fully accounted for. But remember, if you can remember the map from earlier, not all congests were coastal. Some of the poorest areas were in fact inland. Ethnographers Arnsberg and Kimball noted that in the hierarchy of household consumption, rural women, although overworked both indoors and outdoors, were last to eat and fed on leftovers with small children. Malnutrition compromises the body's immunity, and as Massimo Levi-Bacci argues, that hastens the process of infection, and infection can cause malnutrition. Virulent infections like influenza act oblivious to nutritional status, but respiratory diseases, which feature heavily in the Registry General's annual reports, are, however, strongly conditioned by nutritional status. Severe poverty created serious health inequalities, and this manifested most in maternal mortality deaths and TB. We know that neither were tabulated properly. Several maternal mortality deaths were attributed to TB, and several TB deaths were euphemistically described in the official returns. As the slide shows, according to the aggregate reports of the annual reports of the Register General, or ARG, as a, more, a very appropriate acronym, Ireland did not have much by way of a maternal mortality problem, and it was decreasing. But if you dig into these statistics, what is very worrying is that the location of the majority of these deaths was in rural Ireland, indicating serious problems with maternal health and maternity care. The reverse was true in terms of infant mortality, where in urban areas the deaths were 90 per thousand live births. In rural Ireland, that rate was 56. Greta Jones contends that in rural Ireland, higher rates of female mortality from TB persisted well into the 20th century. And in 19, 1940, deaths from tuberculosis of all forms amounted to 3,685, and 47% of these were, were, were of women. But it was primarily the, the main cause of death of those aged between 
15 and 45, and women fared consistently worse than men in early reproductive years in terms of deaths per thousand. To conclude, in this paper, I argue that although central to the grand narratives of nationhood, the rural poor were largely forgotten in Sir South Aram. The Gaeltag, despite its centrality to the embodiment of the nation, was completely lost under generic free state policies, and the bodies of women suffered most in that context. With the modernisation of Irish society and the shift towards larger holdings came a great sacrifice for women. Their, their earnings became household earnings, and they lost financial autonomy. Smallholders were caught in an impossible bind, although always on the verge of want, if they wanted to benefit from an increased in an increase in land holdings, then a facade of financial security was requisite. So it was important to maintain a, a silence about deprivation. I mentioned that absences and silences uh, may have beleaguered our understandings of rural poverty and how that is so very gendered, but there are large bodies of records out there that can help us unlock this history. If the people appear outwardly silent about such matters in their efforts to gain upward mobility, then government commissions and vital statistics provide ample, if indirect, evidence of alarming levels of deprivation and health inequality. And to end on a more positive note, this total history is not completely lost. Rural Irish were proud and well able to articulate themselves and their plight in petitions, and the records of the Irish Land Commission contain a treasure trove of such letters. If these working records of the Department of Agriculture remain closed, then it can also be recovered from the National Folklore Collection. And in keeping with the conference theme of Why Not a Woman, I will leave the last word to Peg Sayers. And I have to refer to this wonderful animation by Kiriak, who's a fabulous animator, and follow her on Twitter. I consider uh, Peg Sayers one of Ireland's most important storytellers. While her account may have, uh, of the hard life uh, that she and the people of the Blasket Island had may have scarred generations of Irish language students, to me, she was a hugely important custodian of the Irish tradition. Transcribed at the end of her days, her autobiography is peppered with accounts of maternal mortality, multiple losses of children, the hard life and despair. But throughout her book, she uses devices and several interesting nuances to maintain a covenant of secrecy and a respect for the privacy of the living and the dead. In her conclusion, she assures herself, actually, that in her writings that she, and I quote, I wasn't hard on any of my neighbours either. We passed our lives together peacefully and lovingly, and on the, and, and on the hill on, and in the garden, we gave one another a helping hand. We were poor people who knew nothing about the riches or the luxuries in life, but people like us will never again be there. Niveg or Lehedi Arishtan. Gormila Mahagoth. Mahagoth, Kira, Agus Kogordakas, Saren Abershaw, Bishay, and um, among our panel of high achievers, <laughs> because uh, clearly the standard is uber high, is uh, Sarah-Anne Buckley. And uh, Sarah-Anne is a lecturer in the Department of History in NUI Galway. And her specialist area of work at the moment is youth culture in Ireland, which actually I think is incredibly sort of appropriate time to sort of start looking at youth culture. Because uh, I look at it a lot from sort of population preferences. You know, now we have Generation Y and Generation Z, and younger people have never been more researched 
for their contemporary preferences. And so without further ado. Thanks to all of you for making it here and coming and listening to us. Um, I have one caveat. I set the 15 minute papers and then I remembered I couldn't cover violence in the home and institutions. So I'm just talking about the home. So it's completely my fault. But um, I am happy to talk about institutions in the questions if anyone is interested. So it has been 44 years since Nuala Fennell wrote her letter to the Irish Times highlighting the prevalence of domestic violence in Ireland. As we now know, it received a huge response and the organization Women's Aid, among other refuges, grew from this momentum. While perhaps not comparable to the international response to the hashtag MeToo movement that it has provoked, the letters and reaction that followed Fennell's 1974 letter had a substantial impact in raising visibility in Ireland and showing the social, economic and practical issues facing women in situations of domestic violence. In her 74 book, Irish Marriage, How Are You?, Fennell cited a number of other cases she had received through the group AIM. These personal stories are critical to our understanding of women's experience, which often encompassed many forms of violence. Quote, for 12 years, my husband has beaten me, and at the beginning, I was only 17 when I married, I never questioned his right to do it, but I hated him for it. I was pregnant and had to get married, but that baby was the only one of my children, conceived in affection, if not love. The others were all a result of rape, and let no one tell you or me you cannot have that in a marriage. As I'm sure many of you know, despite evidence of its prevalence, rape within marriage was only recognized in Irish legislation in 1993. Using a variety of sources, this paper will examine how domestic violence or, quote, wife beating was dealt with in Ireland prior to 1974. It will question the visibility of this form of violence, the treatment of men by the courts and by the press, and the options for women. In the 19th century, as work by Liz Steiner-Scott has shown, wife-beating was recorded frequently in the courts and in the press. From 1920 to the emergence of the feminist movement in the late 60s, I would argue this visibility was lessened. Over the past 50 years, feminist scholars have argued that the basis of wife-beating is male dominance, a dominance built on social, economic, political, and psychological power. In order to examine why wife-beating occurred and whether it was accepted in 19th and 20th century Ireland, these powers need to be addressed. Defining domestic violence as a social problem, not something that occurs in the privacy of homes, remains one of the greatest achievements of second-wave feminists. But understanding its occurrence necessitates placing it in the historical context. In the mid to late 19th century, as with incest and cruelty to children, wife-beating was portrayed by temperance advocates and social reformers as a working-class problem in which working-class men were, quote, barbaric individuals whose, quote, pathetic wives needed protection from the state. In 1853, the Aggravated Assaults on Women and Children Act was introduced to address this issue. Unsurprisingly, very few women were willing to prosecute their husbands under the act due to, quote, 
economic dependency, fear of reprisals, and distrust of the law. Throughout the 1880s, wives declined to prosecute husbands or refused to substantiate charges made. The following case is atypical of many of those that came to court but were not fully prosecuted. Quote, a man named P, a labourer, was charged in the Northern Divisional Police Court, Dublin, before Mr O'Donnell with having assaulted his wife. When the case was called, the complainant, a respectably dressed woman, refused to prosecute. The complainant said that if her husband was sent to jail, she and her children would starve. Mr O'Donnell said that they could go to the poorhouse, and with that, the woman declined to prosecute. The economic power of men spared many from prosecution, uh, especially in cases of warning from households containing children. Had she been childless, she may have chosen to leave her husband and live alone, although I have found that was rarely the case. But factoring in the dependence of her children placed her in an impossible situation. On being presented with a choice of the workhouse or a violent husband, she chose the path of least disruption for her and her children. At the same sessions, a man received two months imprisonment for an assault on his wife, which had been witnessed by a police constable. The woman had retrieved the policeman after an initial assault, and upon entering the room, he, quote, jumped up and swearing he would take her life, struck her in the face. That was her husband. The woman stated that her husband had previously, quote, knocked her off a stool on which she had been sitting by a kick in the jaw, and then while she was on the floor, he attempted to choke her. In the court, the husband stated, quote, he was sorry he had not done more. What the case demonstrates is that unless women were in direct danger of being murdered, they were very reluctant to prosecute. The 1853 Act did legislate for wife beating, but it did nothing to deal with the structural inequalities that enabled husbands to beat their wives without fear of reprimand. Even in the cases that were prosecuted, the economic dependence of wives and economic independence of men remained an issue as men were able to pay the fines that were given by the court. For those cases that made it to court, but in which women refused to prosecute, most women told the judge they would forgive their husband and hoped that this would act as a warning to him to not do it again. This is really depressing paper, by the way. I should have said that at the start. In November 1934, the following statement was given to an inspector of the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Quote, on Friday afternoon, I asked my husband to go down to the fields for some bushes. He had a sore shoulder. He said he couldn't do it as his shoulder was paining him. He kicked the fire off the hearth and started arguing and fighting and caught me by the throat and said only he didn't feel like it. He'd bash in my head with a stick, which he had in his hand. I said, you'd better not do anything like that. He calmed down after some time and went to bed. Then about five or six o'clock when he had gone down to bed, I baked a cake and got ready the tea. I told him his tea was ready, but he would not get up to have it. About eight o'clock, my husband got up and came to the kitchen where I was washing some baby clothes. He said, pour out that tea for me. I said, couldn't you pour it out yourself while I finished the washing? He then picked up the teapot from the hearth and uh, threw it on the floor. It is an enamel teapot and now is leaking. At the same time, he used the expression, quote, fuck you, you dirty little bitch. My husband then left the house and remained in a short time. He asked for water to wash his shoulder. I said it will be boiled in a few minutes. He kicked the saucepan off the fire. He left the house and remained out until 
11 a.m. Saturday morning. When he came in, he made a lot of noise. I said, don't wake the child. To hell with you and the child, he said. Saturday morning at noon, he struck me in the face with his open hand. This happened in the hallway. I then went to the barracks at 1.30 p.m. My husband came with me. I made a complaint to the sergeant. He said I should take him a summons. I then went to Father O'Byrne and made a complaint to him. He advised me to leave him when I couldn't live with him anymore. My husband was not present at this. In the last attack, he said, quote, I'll take your bloody life the night and will not leave you able to be telling tales. In 1935, one third of cases examined by the NSPCC inspector in Wexford involved cases of wife beating. For the inspectors, these cases needed to be addressed in reference to the effects on the children. In general, in order to receive relief and assistance, wives needed to be seen as vulnerable, innocent, and weak. If a woman was viewed as provoking an assault, the inspector would be less sympathetic, as the following case shows. Quote, both parents are difficult, the man is hot-tempered, and his wife continues to nag him, which he resents. Nagging was a term that began to be used more frequently from the 1930s, as an explanation for domestic violence. In this instance, the inspector viewed wife beating as violence between equal combatants and in which the woman had provoked the abuse. Now, finally, I'm going to look at a case where a woman was the perpetrator. In July 1885, Mary M was convicted of murdering her husband by poisoning him with arsenic. She received a death sentence, which was commuted to life. During the trial, she argued that her children had also been involved in the crime. What the case demonstrates is that when it came to sentencing, the courts often viewed women and men equally in cases of murder. While the case does not mention why she decided to murder her husband, in many instances, the motive I have found was desperation due to abuse. In 1893, another woman was convicted of attempting to poison her husband at the Cork Winter Assizes. In December, she had written a letter to the local doctor complaining that her husband was robbing her and her children. The letter stated, quote, if you send me a, or give me a little dose of something to give that would not act sudden, but would linger for three or four days before it would prove fatal, I will pay you whatever amount you want. The doctor reported the woman to the police, after which she was arrested and prosecuted. In her petition for release, she explained the circumstances surrounding her request and the situation in the home. Quote, I was driven to desperation from him being a bad head to me and squandering all my means and running myself and children to beggary. He is a terrible drunkard. I would feel grateful if your excellency would take a few months off my time as I have a helpless young family and no one to look after them but strangers, my husband not being the best to them. I am the mother of 14 children had an in very delicate health. I had neither solicitor or counsellor to plead my case for me. One of my children has died since I came in here, and I am sure a good many more will if I am not released. In response to the petition, the judge stated, the conclusion I have arrived at after reading the deposition was that her husband had behaved very badly to her and that she had deliberately formed her design to poison him and had taken steps in order to carry design would affect by applying to a doctor to supply her. She appeared to be a frail, worn woman. I passed what I thought was a very lenient sentence, uh, 12 calendar months. Throughout the 19th century and up to 1920, both the press and the courts regularly recorded and dealt with cases of wife beating. 
Contrary to Mr. Hodder's comment above, its occurrence was known and accepted. Provocation, when established by husbands, could result in them escaping a sentence, and in a few desperate situations, women murdered or attempted to murder their husbands. For most working class and poor women, however, marriage and economic dependence locked them into abusive relationships. With fewer women employed after 1920 than previously, this dependence increased, and the silence surrounding wife beating from the 20s to the emergence of second wave feminism created unbearable conditions for many. This silence was both upheld and enforced by the various churches which frequently told battered wives to remain in the home, the family was the most important factor. Some, however, realized that the violence to their children could allow them to approach the NSPCC and seek some relief. By connecting their own violent situation with the safety of their children in the home, they were using the child protection agenda to their own benefit. Today, Ireland lags significantly behind in resources for women in situations of violence in the home. As economic and practical concerns remain central to choice, the housing crisis and years of austerity have prevented many women from leaving violent situations. At its core, hashtag MeToo was about believing women, believing their stories of abuse and offering solidarity and support. While for many women, myself included, the Ireland of 2018 is a very different one from that of 1974. Women's Aid recently showed that one in five women who have been in a relationship have been abused by a current or former partner. That abuse may have been physical, emotional, psychological, or sexual. But if that is the case, which I'm sure it is, is that, uh, to me, hashtag me too, me too may still be but a mere whisper in the Ireland of today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah-Anne, and you are bang on time, so uh, well done for that and for delivering, I think, very powerful, very serious uh, subject matter um, with such strength, uh, but very admirable. And actually, I chaired the Board of Women's Aid just at the cusp of the recession, and one of the very kind of obvious sort of strains in the whole uh, resourcing, I suppose, at the time of support for uh, women experiencing domestic violence was it was one of the first areas actually to suffer um, in terms of cutbacks. So, you know, as a, I suppose, as a kind of backdrop or whatever, the supports actually left at a time probably when pressures and familiar pressures increased. Um, so I think it's very important to sort of have reflected on that piece as well in, in your paper. To end off our contributions uh, this afternoon, um, I'm really pleased uh, that we're, we're closing off with Donna Vuma's uh, presentation, which, as I said at the outset, is in some ways a personal reflection of her time here in Ireland. So Donna's been living in Ireland for the past four years. She's originally from Zimbabwe, and she's participating in a BA programme uh, as part of the Sanctuary programme, I think, actually, Donna, which is a wonderful programme in UL. It's something that... I think every university can learn something of. So if you're not aware of it, go, go learn about it. Um, and I think actually that the programme in many ways speaks to the ethos of uh, people that are in learning and giving of learning, uh, that there's a great generosity there. You know, and I think that's a reflection of what Sanctuary does. So it's great that you're here as an example of what Sanctuary does, but also to contemporise uh, your story and how we as 
influencers, as historians, as academics, need to consider current experience to plan for the future so that those kind of horrible histories in many ways, you know, can be uh, restrained or, or not repeated. So you're very welcome, Donna. A very good afternoon to all of you and thank you so much for being here. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to be here and an honour and I want to thank Dr. Sarah Buckley for inviting me and the Women's History Association of Ireland. I hope I said that correctly. Great. There's a poet that I love, I'm sure many people know her, Maya Angelou. Um, there's, there's a specific poem by her, it's called The Caged Bird, that I really love and it's just been in my mind the whole day and I was just thinking of this particular part where she says the caged bird sings with the fearful thrill of things unknown but longed for still and his tune is heard on the distance on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom um, it's, it's a piece that I hold so dear because whatever situation I find myself in I can I find I can apply it and then it gives me that bit of hope um, so, women's roles in society have been changing for decades now. Uh, women have always been expected to govern the domestic sphere. Women are expected to stay at home, raise children, and have an evening meal waiting for their husbands. The changes we see today certainly haven't come easy. We still must deal with making less than men in wages and advancing to higher positions in companies, for example. I look at the women's rights movement and realize how we have come across very strongly, fighting for political, social, and economic status. It is interesting how women's roles have changed in society from generation to generation. It's also interesting how the battles that have been fought have changed in some instances and, and some have remained the same. After fighting for so long to break those limitations and boundaries imposed on us and asserting that a woman's place is not in the kitchen, and that our role is not only to nurture and build the ideal family, rather women's place is in education, it's in the workplace, and it's most certainly in the revolutions. I fast forward to 2018, to me here now in Ireland. I'm educated, I'm skilled, quite experienced, but I've been living in limbo in the direct provision system for the last four and a half years. I'm constantly fighting, I find this very ironic, for the right to be in the kitchen, you know, for the right to be able to nurture my, fam my family or the ideal family. I'm constantly fighting for the right to work and for the right to education. I feel like we've taken two steps forward and ten steps back. I don't think I need to get into the details of what direct provision is and what its intentions are. Um, there's a lot of material and articles that you can find um, on the internet about that. But I will say that direct provision as a system is not fit for purpose and it needs to be abolished. So like I said, I've been living in the system for um, four and a half years now. I arrived in 2014 with three of my children who are now aged 14, 10, and eight. I don't spend much time with them, but some with it. Um, and we live in a hostel type accommodation um, the, the center that we live in is made up of prefab blocks and it's a former army barracks. We have no right to cook our own meals there. We have three rooms and a bathroom that we share. For the last 
four years or so, we have lived on a two-day rotation menu that is served every day at exactly the same times. We are provided with toiletries in the form of uh, four shampoos, four shower gels, um, four types of toothpaste a month, and we get four rolls of toilet paper a week. And with no right to work, obviously, we have a weekly allowance of 21 euro 60, which was recently increased by 2 euro 50. It, it has been, it was 19 euro 10 cents for the past um, 17 years that direct provision has been in existence. So what that means essentially is that for the last four and a half years or so, we have lived on an income of about 85 euro a week. We live in a forced state um, of poverty. I feel like this system of direct provision has robbed me of my dignity, my pride, my self-confidence, and my identity as a woman. Unfortunately, this is not only my reality. It's the reality of over 1,600 children's um, parents that are also living in direct provision. And it raises the question, like, is this acceptable? The parents' roles are of a maximum importance for personality development of the children. The first role of the parent is to take care of the child's biological needs, providing physical care to fulfill the needs of the child, meaning proper food, fresh air, good lighting, enough sleep, recreation time, that kind of thing. I've failed to do that as a parent for the last four years. You have to be able to provide a safe, nurturing, and supportive environment that allows children to grow healthy. For an optimal development, children need adequate physical home environment, a tolerant and positive atmosphere, conditions for positive changes and improvements, opportunities to explore and experiment their environment in a consistent routine. I have failed to do this as well. I have failed to provide that for my family. To raise children properly, your duties aren't limited to food, shelter, and protection, but also require you to teach and educate them to shape knowledge and character, to prepare your child to face the real world. Um, about two years ago, my, my, my son came to me, he was about six, I guess, at this time, and he came to me and he said, Mom, I need five euro for, for something in school tomorrow. And I was obviously in bed, because that's what you do in direct provision if, you, if you're not um, out and about. You go and have your meals, you go back to your room, you sleep, wake up and, and do whatever. So... Constantly, every time they came back from school, they would find me still in bed. And he said, and I said to him, oh, Ashton, I'm sorry, I don't have the five euro. You'll have to wait until Thursday, because that's when we get our check, and then I'll be able to give you that five euro. And he said to me, of course you won't have the five euro. You're always in bed. You're always sleeping in bed. So, of course you won't have the five euro. That was a shocking moment for me, you know. And obviously, as a, as a parent, like, you can't say that, get out of here, you know go and play, mind yourself, and I try to brush it off. But at that particular moment, I, I realized that these children, like children are naturally like sponges, like everything that we do, whether we're aware of it or not, they are watching that and they are learning from that and they mimic that. And I found myself asking myself, what kind of an example am I setting, am I setting for my children? What are they learning um, from, from this routine or from this way of living that, that's being presented to, him, to them. Um, as a woman living in direct provision, you're forced to face challenges that are beyond ordinary. 
What lens would you go through to provide for your needs, your own personal needs, or for those of your children? For some women, desperation has forced them into, situ into situations where they must prostitute themselves for an extra income. I don't know if this is a known fact, but I've realized that they've, they've been reporting it a bit more now, where, well, for, for me, I've seen it happening, where you'll see um, people, or, or I'll be specific, men that come and just linger around the direct provision centers um, and try to, to solicit the woman there to say, listen, if, you, if I give you some money for some, you know, for sexual favors or whatever, you know, will you do it? And it's so sad because a lot of the times you'll see women fall into this trap because someone probably wants to buy their, you know, face foundation because they can afford it from their 21 euro 60, or they're looking to buy something essential like a packet of pads because obviously your period is not going to wait for you to say, you know, I don't have that money or I don't, I can't provide for that. So it's it's really difficult to watch that. But also, even with the men in the centres that we live in. Um, I live in a centre where there's a um, population of about 400 people, and I can say about 80% of that is males. And sometimes people will come to you and offer you and say, listen, I'll give you a fiver if I can spend an hour or two in your room. I know you need it because you have children. You know, I know that you need that extra bit of money. Um, but this, this is the kind of, of challenges that women living in direct provision have to face because we don't have that right to work. Also, you find that women are being forced to stay in abusive relationships, like some people go and have relationships outside of the center in an attempt to get away from living in the direct provision center and for them to try and portray, portray that they're living that normal life. This leads to a lot of issues where someone is trying to escape one problem and ends up having 10 times more the problem than what they're trying to escape. Like, we, we see a lot of people suffering from depression and anxiety, back to the lack of self-confidence, losing their dignity, and in extreme cases, um, resorting to suicide. People living in direct provision have no right to third-level education. Um, I've been fortunate because I'm a beneficiary of the University of Sanctuary Scholarships that Catherine mentioned there, which is a really great initiative. Um, it's still quite new, so not very much people have been able to avail of that. But it means that most people cannot further their education while living in direct provision. They cannot reskill and they cannot upskill. This is a great impact, especially on the young women, because <clears throat> it means that they don't have a chance to acquire the skills, sorry, <clears throat> to effectively compete in the labor market or have an opportunity to learn the socio-emotional and life skills necessary to navigate and adapt to a changing world or to make decisions about their own lives and will hinder them from making valuable contributions to their future communities. And I'm afraid because I see this as something that could be happening to my own daughters in the near future. Direct provision desensitizes women. There's so much barriers, challenges, and exclusion that we face as women living in the direct provision centers. It has made us unnecessarily resilient. Today, the world is developing fast. 
and working hard to achieve global sustainable development by 2030. It's one of the United Nations' most ambitious projects, I think. It would then be a mistake to neglect the condition of women living in direct provision. Ireland is fast becoming a multicultural and diverse country. In the same way that charity begins at home, so does the development of a nation. A nation cannot achieve its truest social and economic development if its women are neglected. No one should be subjected to the constraints of institutionalized living. Retired Supreme Court um, Judge Catherine McGuinness predicted that at some point, the government will find it necessary to apologize publicly for the damage done, in particular to the children of asylum seekers, just as it, had, just as it has had to apologize to former residents of industrial schools and the Magdalene laundries, who were victims of abuse as well as state indifference. One thing that I know for sure is that the power of a woman is limitless. It cannot be contained. History has taught us that. It overflows with willpower and determination. Women have found power in a variety of ways throughout history in their struggle towards justice and equality. And because our strength is a force to be reckoned with, we cannot be put down and we cannot be silenced. Just as the brave ladies who led the women's rights movements before and now, we shall not be silenced. We shall overcome, and hopefully someday we can um, bring an end to the cruel and inhumane system of direct provision. Thanks. Thank you, Donna, for sharing, I think, a very <coughs> difficult story with us. Um, and you are making history, maybe history that we won't be proud of, but history that we should learn from. And I think your contribution is very powerful. It's the cold shower in the room uh, that we probably need more of because sometimes the issues that you face aren't heard enough. Um, so I think it's very appropriate and you delivered it with such eloquence so thank you again maybe if anybody is um willing to kick off uh, to make a, an observation uh, please let me know and um, my first thing is to donna can i just say thank you very much for such a powerful paper i am ashamed of direct provision and please can i ask anybody email your, your tds your senators we have this is something that in 20 years time like the laundries, like the mother and baby homes, the Taoiseach is going to stand up in the doll and apologise for it. So thank you very much. It was such an important paper. Uh, my question is to Sarah-Ann. Um, Sarah-Ann, do you know, so, you know, Linda Connolly's work, for example, would suggest, you know, would show that when the first wave feminist movement died out, that even though there was an upsurge in activism in the second wave, that there was still informal supports, things going mm. on in the ground, are you aware of whether or not there was any supports for women suffering from violence in that time? Yeah, like I didn't get to, I suppose, address it as much there, but obviously Linda's work and Katrina Bowmount, there are organisations that are more broadly campaigning for women's rights. I suppose what you see on the ground, so it's the court records I use primarily and the press. Um, I did a thorough search of the press records from the 19th century up to the 1960s and you see 
a complete drop off from the 1920s in uh, the reporting. And that's not the case in the 19th century and early 20th century. Now, I don't want to overemphasize it too much because even, say, the Irish Citizen newspaper didn't address wife beating that regularly or that um, aggressively. So silence is still a big part of the story. But in the courts, you know, it's like I only looked at four counties and in those four counties, and I would like to do more, but those four counties, um, there's, you know, I have a sample in the hundreds. So um, I think that we have to start, you know, questioning. And obviously I'm taking a feminist approach to this. I put my hands up. <laughs> Shocking. Um, but uh, I think it is important to understand why women didn't have options in our history or why those options were so difficult, basically. Um, and I suppose for me, when there's children involved, it's also another lens that I can view them. Um, and I know like Lindsay Arna Burns' work when it comes to charity records and that, often women knew they could use the fact that they were mothers and they would get a lot more assistance. So um, I think that is agency on their part when they're using that fact to address another problem. Um, yeah. Lucy, can I ask you to come in there as well? Because obviously there's yeah. a link you know, with um, with both your presentations, you know, one being in the realm of the fairy tale, you know, with strong lessons behind it, and then obviously the other is grounded in the newspaper reports and the court reports of the time. But uh, what's your reflection on that? The thing about the fairy legends is that most of the time you don't hear what the women have to say. I mean, I put the quotations up. You hear very little from them, and their expressiveness is mostly not verbal, it's mostly refusals. So to the extent that fairy legends take something from the social reality, and that's, you know, they do take something from it. I mean, you can tell the domestic details with the flax and the meals and so forth. Um, they, you see women expressing themselves, but not verbally, mm -hmm. I think in the fairy legends, yeah. you know, mostly with refusals, though I thought it was interesting in the first two stories, they, they praise the person who has been um, beating them mm -hmm. in both cases. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and in both cases, that signifies the end of the abuse. They're, they're submitting in yeah. some way. Yeah. So the wonderful thing about court records is that you hear what they have to say. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But I, I wouldn't want to minimize the expressiveness of all the refusals mm. to participate in domestic life. Really. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so there's another hand up. Do you want to? Thank you. I'm Angela Burke, UCD. And Lucy um, gave a very rich reading of three fairy legends and invoked my work. But I think that the four papers hung together most magnificently to, to tell us something that maybe is a direction for the future because the fairy legends of the kind that Lucy discussed and that I have worked on, they don't just deal with social conflict, they deal with violence. They are euphemisms for violence very often. They're often also uh, euphemisms for TB and for poverty. And uh, Kira talked about Peg Sayers at the end and, and uh, made a very welcome uh, case for her 
you know, rehabilitation. And in fact, the Royal Irish Academy held a conference the other day, a half-day conference, which was an amazing experience, really, with, with new work um, about Peg Sayers. And I would say that Peg Sayers' storytelling, it's not just that, as Lucy said, that women express themselves in their bodies in refusal to um, comply, but that the women who tell stories about fairy possession, fairy absence, those women are expressing something very profound about their understanding of their society. And I would look, say, to the stories told by Peg Sayers, not the story of her own life, but the fictional stories. And the, the piece that Kira put up is about, um, you know, she's uh, satisfying herself that she hasn't calumniated any of her neighbours because she was so skillful a verbal artist. So um, she manages to discuss violence. She manages to discuss abusive marriages. She manages to discuss poverty, envy, social class in very oblique ways using this tangential um, register of the fairy legend. And in terms of Donna's wonderful presentation, it seems to me that we have come in this society from talking about the list, the, 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 the fairy fort where, they, where all of this magical stuff has its home and which Noel Nigono's poetry explores so richly, the idea of the list as the kind of heterotopia, the place where anything may happen, the subconscious, the, the dark side of culture and personality and nature. Um, we have come from this idea of the fairy fort, which is a place where you don't let children go, you don't want to talk about it, you warn them against it, to a place where the Magdalene Laundry was a place, again, where children did not go, where the children from who lived there were marched in after the other children were seated in the schools so that they wouldn't have any fraternization. We have come now so that women's aid shelters and direct provision centers are those places that are, they are, they are, walled and, and secured for the security of the people within, but also for the oblivion, oblivion of the people outside. So I would just, as a person who works on texts and on oral traditions, I would urge the historians to talk to their colleagues who are working in Irish language studies and in folklore studies, and to think about the folklore archive as a resource, and to some break, not, not break it exactly, because we all, we all need to keep discretion sometimes about things, a rich metaphorical life enables us to hold many thoughts at the same time, but I would really urge the historians to talk to, as I said, the Irish language scholars and the folklorists, and to open up this whole tendency in our culture, because it hasn't gone away, the, the tendency to lies, secrets and silence, uh, and the covering up. Thank you. Thank you for Thank you very much Thank because you, you know you've so made much. my job so easy because now I don't need to do a summary. You know, I think that you've so effectively brought all the sort of pearls in the chain together and you know given such a succinct overview. Now the one thing actually I would just add to that if I was um, giving an overview and just talking about, you know, who needs to connect with who. While Kira was on her feet, I was thinking you know, somebody from the Department of Health really should be sitting down there because a lot of what was going on, you know, a hundred years ago is still going on. And again, to go back to the little lesson that um, I had with Kira in history about reinventing the wheel, you know, uh, nutrition, um, health inequalities happen in disadvantage. And I think that that core point and it travels and it moves and it's now in direct provision where access to nutrition is one of the, the 
issues that you have to face for your children as well, Donna. And I think, you know, your ability to present that without actually being angry or without, you know, blaming anybody is just quite incredible. And actually, maybe that links in a little bit to the story, you know, that we tell the story in such a way that, you know, we're not giving out to our neighbour, but we're just telling it through a prism that we find comfort in. So um, I think there's a lot there. So maybe I'll just flick back to you, Kira, just on that notion of, you know, all of these lessons from the past and what are we doing with them now? How do we learn? Who needs to learn? Well, I'd like to say that um, I, I, I cite you uh, a lot, uh, Professor Burke, and I work very closely with Christopher McCorick. Uh, they're wonderful out in the um, folklore uh, collection. And I, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. Historians and folklorists need to work much more closely together and archivists and librarians. And I think that we have an awful lot to, to bring to the table. Um, I, I, I think that for, for us as historians, we're, we're constantly fighting the fight for humanities. And it can be tiresome um, because we're the first thing to get caught in times of austerity. And uh, we, we saw that with the recession in 2008 and Katrina Crowe's here as well that you know the National Archives has been described as a quango and um, the, everything was under critical review and we were all being reviewed and whatever else um, but there's a tendency in Ireland I think to just kind of regard the, the uh, you know what the ground beneath your feet and just kind of look after your own space but I think we can't do that anymore and one of the things that Peg did and the people of the Great Blasket Island did was there was a metal system there. If somebody didn't have something, you gave it to them, you shared or whatever. And, and you know, there was a generosity there. And I, and I think that Irish society is losing that a little bit. And we can't stand idly by with Donna giving such a powerful paper today as women. And, uh, you know, I'm like Claire. I'm deeply, deeply, deeply ashamed. And I hope that in the next year that we have Leo Varadkar standing up uh, saying, I'm deeply ashamed of our treatment of uh, uh, both visitors and citizens of our country uh, living in direct provision now. And it's, it's shameful. And uh, we have a history of poverty in Ireland and one that isn't in our too distant past. Um, many people here probably wore hand-me-downs. I know I did. I wore Action Man t-shirts. I was the I don't know how they were still knocking around eight years later, but I did. And uh, it's not that far away, and we're never that far from it. And uh, we need a bit more kindness, and that's what humanities teaches, and that's what we as uh, humanists uh, bring to the table. So I'll, I'll just stop with that. Very good. Catherine, can I add something? Maybe this is implicit in everything, but to go from what Angela was saying and combine it with what Donna expressed, I think we also need, before you can get the nutrition and all the better material circumstances for the people in direct provision, they also need to be telling their stories, and we need to collect all those stories. I mean, we have some of them now, but there needs to be somebody talking to those people and getting it all down uh, for social change as well as for the record and the interest. Mm -hmm. And there is, isn't there? There, well, there's yeah. starting to be like. I should say I invited Donna two years ago to speak and um, everyone cried and I have to try not to cry there but, um, and Kira laughed at me. Um, but uh, what I'll say is it just so happened Joe Duffy was in the room and then he did a week on Lifeline but um, basically no one could use their own names because their application might have gotten held up. 
So like it's only in the last two years they've you've even been able to speak and it's so brave when you come here and it's so brave when Lucky and other people speak out. Because like you say, Lucy, if we don't have the stories, you know, and it's not like we all have to, we don't have to go around feeling guilty. We, like guilt doesn't get us nowhere. We need to take some action. We have privilege, all of us in this room, and we take action that way. You can feel guilty on your own if you want, but it's, the guilt won't get us anywhere unless we're doing what Claire said, which is make some people in power feel guilty, maybe. Um, might work. Um, but this will be podcast and maybe that will again keep adding to that um, but do you want to say anything about the stories that people are telling or, or on social media or oh yeah so there's a, 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 a Facebook page that was set up it's similar to what was used during the, um, the campaign for the referendum way I think it was called in my shoes yeah. um, so there's, there's something similar on Facebook where People living in direct provision are able to share their stories anonymously, uh, but just to try and get people to know the human stories, you know, the, the, to hear the stories from the people living in in the direct provision system themselves. And there's also the Masi page, which is the Movement of Asylum Seekers Island. So it's a group that's run by asylum seekers for asylum seekers, um, and they're also on Facebook, and you can learn more about the movement through that page um, or the website as well. But yeah, that's... Very good. Thank you, Donna. Uh, one of the interesting things, just as we're talking about sharing stories, and clearly sharing stories, whether it's through, you know, folklore, it's through legends, it's through, you know, making a testimony, going on live line, whatever it is, you know, finding safe spaces. And I think there's a responsibility maybe on the humanities as well to look at how people can tell their stories in safety. Because, of course, Ireland's incitement to hatred laws are way below what they should be. And we know that groups um, such as asylum seekers, uh, travellers in Ireland, are very much inhibited from expression because of uh, incitement to hatred. And I suppose as we um, move into, you know, a period when, you know, Europe is becoming more populist, you know, that facility grows without protection for those voices. So that's maybe another little lesson from today. But I want to leave with something a bit uplifting because one of your um, great lines there, uh, Donna, was at the very start, you know, about women's role is in the future. And I think we learn from history to make sure, to make absolutely sure that all of women's voices are in the future. So I'd like to thank the panel and especially, I suppose, to thank Donna for that very personal <laughs> story. Um, I think it's one we'll all carry over into the new year. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Why Not a Woman? Celebrating Women in Public and Private Life in Ireland, 1918 to 2018. The Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2018. For more information on the association, check out the website at womenshistoryassociation.com.